0: A poverty-stricken district of London, 1888. Gangs roam the streets, and most of the residents are living in boarding houses. It's crowded, and probably smelly and miserable. It's dangerous, with attacks and murders happening more often than anyone would like. And yet, no one really takes notice of the place. Until a serial killer appears. (laughs) Hi, and welcome to episode one of the creepiest sleepover. I'm Cat, and we're going to have such an awesome time. Um, so, when I was about twelve or thirteen, I had a sleepover at my house. There were probably six or seven of us all hanging out in my garage room. We had it converted. I wasn't sleeping on the concrete for reasons unbeknownst to me. I ended up telling the story I'm going to tell y'all today. Although, definitely without as much detail, because I was a dumb kid. It was dark, but not late, and we had ordered a pizza, so I told the story while we waited. When there was a knock at the door, one of my friends, again, the reason for this is unknown, shouted, Oh my god, it's Jack the Stripper! And that, my friends, is how the name of this podcast was born. Literally everyone on the planet probably knows the name Jack the Ripper. He, or she, is one of the most famous serial killers ever. Can we just talk about the fact that there are famous serial killers? Look, I know I'm over here trying to make a name for myself talking about them sometimes, but seriously, it's kind of gross. But this whole true crime thing has been a phenomenon for way longer than just the last few years, as we're about to find out. On August 31st, 1888... The body of Mary Ann Nichols was found lying on the pavement outside of a stable house in Whitechapel District. Her throat had been slashed, her body mutilated, and her skirts lifted up because if you're gonna murder someone, make a spectacle of it, I guess. Like many people in Whitechapel, Mary Ann was living in extreme poverty, going from boarding house to boarding house, paying her way by doing whatever work she could, which included sex work. What's really fucked up. And what I didn't know until I was researching for this episode is that her murder was initially assumed to be related to two other murders that happened in the couple of weeks before. Were there murderers just lurking around every corner? Because there were a lot of corners and back alleys in Whitechapel back then. Is it like what suburbanites think walking around downtown is? Like when I was going to college in downtown Dallas, my mom hated that my last class ended at 7. Because in the winter, it was already dark by then, and I had to take the train. And for the record, nothing ever happened, and I never even saw anything shady going on, or I never even felt unsafe. Maybe it's because I'm the idiot. Anyway, Marianne's funeral location wasn't announced publicly so that the service wouldn't be disturbed by the public. Her exact burial location has been lost, but the cemetery does have a plaque that people still visit to this day. A little over a week after Marianne was killed, on September 8th, Annie Chapman was found. Her body was in the same condition that Marianne's was. Throat slashed, body mutilated, skirts lifted. She was an artificial flower seller who supplemented her income with sex work in order to get by. There were hundreds of onlookers. Today, everyone would have their cell phones out, but in 1888, they just stood around and gawked, probably panicked a little. Some people probably shrugged and said, oh, just another day in Whitechapel. That was my British accent. It's not good. Sorry. On September 10th, some local businessmen and tradesmen got together and said, fuck this shit. It's bad for business. I'm not going to do the British accent again, and formed the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee. Sort of like the Neighborhood Watch, but it was less about harassing teenagers out late at night and more about, like, trying to catch a murderer. George Lusk was elected the chairman, and he pressured the government to put up a reward for information leading to the capture of the murderer. When they said, eh, no, it's not like murder is uncommon there, or whatever they said, Lusk and the committee raised the money themselves. They also set up night patrols. The patrolmen were given a small wage and a police whistle and a big stick. At least give them a sword or something. A big stick won't even scare off my cat. You think it's going to scare off a murderer? A few weeks went by quietly, as quietly as they could in Whitechapel, I guess, until the Central News Agency received a letter on September 27th. They'd been receiving a lot of letters, because the Whitechapel murders were, of course, all over the papers. Journalists were doing anything to get a scoop, even following police and harassing witnesses. It would only get worse, too, as the murders went on. So the CNA just sort of filed the letter away for a couple of days and finally gave it to the cops on September 29th, who also filed it away. The next day, on September 30th, two more murders attributed to the same killer occurred within an hour of each other. The first was Elizabeth Stride. Her body was found just outside of a working men's club, which I totally thought at first was a British term for a strip club, but no, it's just wholesome fun for working class men. Cards, billiards, scotch, all that kind of stuff. No titties. Elizabeth's body was not mutilated, but the evidence still indicated that it was the same killer. The thought is that he was disturbed during the murder, possibly by the man who discovered her body, and therefore he didn't have time to horrifically mutilate her. In Mitre Square, not far from Elizabeth, the body of Catherine Eddowes was found. She had been horrifically mutilated, and the killer had taken her ear and a kidney, So there were so many onlookers that the cops had to beg them to back the fuck up. And this is when they decided to release the letter that they got to the press, hoping that someone could identify the handwriting or the apparently strange grammatical errors that were in it. And this is when Jack the Ripper was born, because he signed the letter. He signed it. He picked his own cool serial killer name. I firmly believe that all serial killers should be named after what embarrasses them the most. Like Richard Ramirez, he wouldn't be the night stalker. He would be the stinky breath, fucked up teeth guy. There were two more letters received. One was a postcard known as the Saucy Jack postcard, because he literally writes, quote, you'll hear about Saucy Jackie's work tomorrow, end quote. The other was a letter sent directly to George Lusk, the chairman of that Whitechapel neighborhood watch or whatever. The letter contained part of a human kidney, and the letter said that the writer had fried and eaten the other half. Fried and eaten it. As strange as that is, the handwriting on that letter didn't match the other two. So was the first letter a hoax, too? Who knows, because in the Saucy Jack letter, they had said that they would take the ears of their next two victims. Elizabeth didn't lose an ear, but Catherine did. Coincidence? Who fucking knows? It's generally accepted that the letter Lusk received is genuine, although no one knows if any of the thousands of letters that various media outlets and police received were real. The last victim attributed to Jack the Ripper is Mary Jane Kelly who was murdered on November 9th, over a month after the previous killings. Her body was found in the bedroom that she was renting. Sadly, they couldn't find any family to attend her funeral, but thousands of strangers came to pay their respects. Or to gawk. My opinion on this changes with how I generally feel about humanity that day. Turns out, going viral isn't really a new thing. News of the Whitechapel murders spread around the entire world. The only good thing to come out of that is that people finally realized, hey, this place is kind of fucked up. All the buildings suck, living conditions are terrible, and people are suffering. We should probably fix it. The media sort of created Jack the Ripper. Like how the media now sensationalizes stuff. Fake news, anyone? It happened even when the internet didn't exist. When my mom was all afraid of me being downtown at night, most of that came from news stories about murders and robberies and stuff. And those happen everywhere. There's an unsolved murder case that happened like five minutes from where I live, and I live in the suburbs. Whitechapel was, to put it bluntly, a slum. It was already perceived as the seedy underbelly of London, so when the Ripper murders happened, the press predictably had a fucking field day with it. They falsely accused people, they criticized the police for not being able to catch him, which, I mean, fair point, I guess, although it's not like there were forensics labs in the 1880s. And, of course, they criticized the murdered women. Several papers wrote about how it was basically their fault for living drunken, sinful lives or whatever. They were most sympathetic with Mary Jane Kelly because she lived in an actual apartment with a man who, quote, posed as her husband. More on that in a second. And therefore, she was forced into sex work because of her circumstances. I literally have flames on the side of my face right now because, like, she's dead. Let the poor woman rest without investigating every goddamn detail of her life. And look, I'm aware of the irony here, because, hi, I'm making a podcast about it. Like, I get it. I'm a hypocrite, but at least I know it. So, back to this man who lived with Mary Jane Kelly. His name was Joseph Barnett. He was a fish porter, and I googled it. Basically, he carried all the boxes of fish and did all the manual labor around the fish market. Allegedly, he was Mary Jane's ex-boyfriend, but they still live together in the apartment at Miller's Court. It's actually in question whether or not they ever dated or if he was just obsessed with her. Most of this comes from a former British detective named Bruce Paley from an article in True Crime Magazine published in the 70s. Which, like, True Crime Magazine signed me up? Anyway, he wrote a book in 1995 that explained his theory further. Basically, old Joe was obsessed with Mary, and he wanted to get her away from drinking and sex work. So instead of, like, I don't know, sitting down and having a conversation, or maybe trying to help her find work as a barmaid or something, he decided to start viciously murdering her colleagues... I don't know, sounds like some incel shit to me. Joseph and Mary Jane had a fight about a week before she was murdered because she invited a fellow sex worker to stay at their apartment. It's late October in England. It's probably cold and raining. I just assume that every day in England is cold and raining. The detective suggests that Mary Jane had a lesbian relationship with this fellow sex worker. Her name was Maria Harvey, And even if she did, so what? It's none of Joe's business. But no, old Joe just decided that that was enough. And they had a huge fight, and he moved out. So just like basically every other true crime story, he kept trying to reconcile with her. She stood her ground, as she was absolutely right to do. And then finally, he just straight up murdered her. It's... Worth noting that Mary Jane Kelly's body was far more mutilated than the others, only being identifiable by the one ear she had left and her eyes. I skipped reading the entire description because as much as I enjoy reading true crime stories, I really don't need to know the gory bits. I'm here for the psychology. Thank you very much. I promise it's not like getting Playboy just for the articles. It's been nearly 150 years since the Ripper murders, and despite what the internet might tell you, I'm pretty sure we're no closer to figuring out the true identity of the killer now than they were then. Even now, there are hundreds of suspects. Only about 10 of them are taken seriously, including one absolutely wild conspiracy theory about a prince that I can tell you some other time. Serial killers seem to be much less prevalent now although authorities say there are probably anywhere from 50 to 100 active serial killers in the United States right now, in the year of our Lord 2022. Even Jack the Ripper could have killed more than the five women I mentioned here. So what is it that makes Jack the Ripper stay in our consciousness? Is it the whole unsolved mystery aspect of it? Is it the fact that the killer hated women so much that he had to kill them? Were the cops a bunch of bumbling idiots in those little bobble hats, or was the Ripper just that sly? We'll never know. Thank you so much for joining me for this first episode. I plan on covering more than just true crime. In fact, my game plan is true crime one week, followed by a more paranormal story, disappearances, aliens, cryptids, ghosts, stuff like that. Next week, we'll talk about the disappearance of the Mary Celeste, or more accurately, the disappearance of the crew of the Mary Celeste. Was it mutiny? Insurance fraud? A giant squid? We'll talk about all of it next week on The Creepiest Sleepover. Sleep tight.